Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. Why? 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 These were the last words Skylar Niece would ever speak. On July 7th, 2012, I moved to Morgantown, West Virginia to attend law school. The day before, July 6th, a young girl named Skylar would sneak out of her parents' apartment for the last time. Skylar was 16. She lived in an area of Morgantown known as Star City. There's a Dateline episode about this case, and one thing I have to say is they try to paint Star City as this uh, one-traffic-light, Mayberry-type town in West Virginia with only 1,800 people. And they're not technically wrong, but what, what you have to understand is that Star City is essentially a section of Morgantown. It's like a neighborhood within the city. Uh, within this college town that has a population of 30,000 and and then roughly 25,000 students that come in every fall. But back to Skylar, she was an only child. She worked at Wendy's. She was an excellent student who had a 4.0 GPA in high school and aspirations of attending WVU and someday becoming a lawyer herself. Skylar had all kinds of friends and seems to be the type of person who could get along with anybody. She had lots of friends with different backgrounds and different kinds of kids. And based on accounts from the people she went to school with and her family, she was also fiercely independent and capable. She didn't hide how she felt. And if she thought something, she was going to say it. She really spoke her mind. In the book, Pretty Little Killers, Skylar's father recalls a story from when Skylar was a little girl and their family was on vacation. They were actually at the beach. And uh, even though they were at the beach, as many families do, they spent some time at the pool at the hotel to go swimming. And he said as he was getting ready for the pool, Skylar was so excited and she was already ready. She had her swimsuit and stuff on and she was just determined to get, get in the pool right away. She didn't want to wait for her parents. And so she just jumped in the pool before her dad was in there and ready for her. And he recalls that memory in the context of explaining to the world the kind of person that Skylar was that she lived sort of head first, but always managed to figure it out. Now let's get back to Morgantown, July 5th, 2012. Skylar returned to her family's apartment after working a shift at Wendy's. Shout out, $5 biggie bag. Now Skylar hated smelling like the fryers at work, which I think we can all understand if we've worked in fast food or in those kind of industries. So when she came home, she would change, she would get out of her clothes as, as quickly as she could, hop into the shower, and her mom would put her work clothes in the washer. And that was their routine every time she worked. They did this. July 5th was no different. But little did Skylar's parents know that this routine would end that night. They couldn't know that they would never see their daughter again. Her mother catching a glimpse of Skylar's arm out of the bathroom door, dropping her clothes on the floor, and her father getting one last good night as Skylar made her way to her bedroom locking the door behind her as so many teenagers do. The next day, coming home from work, Skylar's dad knocked on her door, but she didn't answer. So he knocked again and he called for her and said, hey, you know, I want you to take me and drop me off and then you can take my car. And most teenagers, including Skylar, would jump at the chance to borrow their parents' car, but still there was no response. The door was still locked and so her dad got a coat hanger and he used it to pop the door open and unlock it. He opened the door and he could see that there was nobody in Skylar's room. Her bed didn't appear to have been slept in and her window was cracked. The screen to her window was in her closet. And outside the window, he saw on the ground a small bench from inside her room, the kind that sits in front of a bed or a mere desk where a girl would do her makeup. And that's when her dad really began to worry. Then Wendy's called. She didn't show up for work. 
Not long after this, Skylar's parents called the police. Because they lived in Star City, that was the police department that responded, rather than the larger Morgantown Police Department, Mon County Sheriff's Office, or the Morgantown Detachment of the State Police. Now, I don't intend, and I'm not trying to knock Star City Police in any way, but I just want to note the reality of the situation, that it is a much smaller department with uh, more limited resources than some of the surrounding jurisdictions. Now, the apartment complex where the nieces lived had a surveillance system. Police reviewed the video and could see that Skylar left the apartment from her bedroom window at around 12.30 in the morning on July 6th. So this is just after midnight. She got into a car, but the footage is very grainy. It's hard to make out the details about the car. Now, despite fa- Skylar's father pointing out that she didn't take her cell phone charger, that her window was left open, there was a little bench outside, her contact case and solution was still in her room, and that everything he saw led him to believe that she planned to come back home but never made it, the state determined that she was a runaway, so an Amber Alert was not issued. To be clear, investigators on the ground in Morgantown were still investigating this and, and were concerned, but the people who decide whether or not to issue an, an Amber Alert had refused. So at the time, Amber Alerts were not issued for runaway children, so the thinking there is that you know, we're not going to go searching for a kid that a teenager that's run off on purpose. And because grainy videotape showed Skylar leaving the apartment, not being, you know, taken against her will, they wouldn't issue an Amber Alert for her because it didn't look like she'd been kidnapped. It looked like she went of her own free will. And that's sort of supported by the fact that the bench is sitting outside the window. So it's not like somebody broke in the window and snatched her. Clearly looks like she went out the window intentionally to go somewhere. Right. And not long after her disappearance, police received a tip indicating that she had been seen at Carolina Beach in North Carolina with a redheaded girl. We know how you feel about redheaded girls. They trouble. Police had hoped that this tip might pan out because one of Skylar's best friends had red hair. And at the time this was all going down, that friend was away at church camp. So investigators thought perhaps the two had met up somehow and had run off to the beach. But the tipster had simply seen somebody who looked like Skylar. And this was quickly figured out as much when they were able to contact Skylar's friend at the church camp. She reported that she didn't even know Skylar was missing. As the hours dragged into days and the days turned into weeks, missing flyers were posted everywhere. The news ran stories about Skylar's disappearance. It was on the radio. The story was literally everywhere. Everybody in that area knew Skylar was missing. Six months would go by before anybody really knew what had happened to Skylar. But before we talk about where Skylar went and what happened to her, we need to talk about her best friends. There were two girls who were so close to Skylar at this point in their lives that it was practically a given they'd be together. Her uh, Skylar's father has even said that you know they talked essentially 24 hours a day. The trio referred to themselves as the Three Musketeers. Sheila Eddy and Rachel Schof attended University High School with Skylar. The school's just north of Morgantown. Skylar and Sheila had known each other since they were eight years old and had been friends for all of that time. Rachel came into the picture when the girls started in high school, and the three girls seemed to always be together. By all accounts, they were inseparable. And Sheila was a, a fun-loving teenager that maybe pushed the boundaries a bit further than somebody her age ought to, but still, Skylar's parents accepted her as if she was their own daughter. Skylar's mom has said that Sheila didn't even knock on the door when she came over. She just came on in. Not long after Skylar disappeared, Sheila came over to the niece's apartment and asked to go spend time in Skylar's room. Skylar's mom heard Sheila crying and went to the room to comfort her just as she had comforted her own now-missing daughter there so many times. 
And Sheila and her mother would actually help in the search efforts to look for Skylar in the days after her disappearance. Rachel was different from Sheila in many ways. Rachel fit more of a good girl stereotype and was well-liked by many of her classmates. She didn't have a similarly promiscuous reputation or regularly associate with people who were several years older like Sheila did. She was also a talented singer and actor who had aspirations for Broadway. She regularly landed the leading roles in school performances, and her family provided a strict Catholic background. The three girls spent a ton of time together, but in the months leading up to Skylar's disappearance, it was clear that the three musketeers had some underlying tensions with each other. Their social media activity leaves no question about this. For example, on May 31st, 2012, Skylar tweeted, You're a two-faced bitch and obviously stupid if you thought I wouldn't find out. Another tweet from that spring said, Too bad my friends are having lives without me. The day before Skylar disappeared, she posted, You doing shit like this is why I can never completely trust you. And then, the afternoon before she disappeared, she tweeted, Sick of being a f- home. Thanks, friends. Love hanging out with you all, too. This narrative is confirmed looking back on everything that happened. Skylar felt that Sheila and Rachel were becoming closer and pushing her out of their friendship. It wasn't just on social media. Their, their classmates noticed attention too. But nobody could have predicted what it was building up to. The other high schoolers simply noticed that Sheila and Skylar seemed to be at each other's throats more and more. Can you just tell me why I had to play the part of the 16-year-old girl? Is it just because I have B-cups? I mean, it helps. Okay. Now that we know a little bit more about Sheila and Rachel, do you remember how the police reviewed the apartment uh, complex video? I said that earlier. Oh, that they reviewed it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Now, the video is fairly grainy. Uh, you can make out there's cars and, and whatever, but it, it, the details are, are pretty limited, especially as you get further away. And the car that picks Skylar up, it, it's I won't say it's all the way in the background, but it's far enough in the background that it, it's not really easy to tell exactly what kind of car it is, and it's nighttime, so with the taillights and everything, it, it's just kind of washes out, and it's really hard to, to get any detail out of it. What you can tell is that um, Skylar's walking away from the apartment and getting into an average size grayish color car, which limits it to about half the cars on the road. It looks like she probably got in the back seat of this car. Yeah, it's the kind of thing when I, I saw that video and it looked to me like the kind of thing where you couldn't look at that video and go, oh, that's a... 2003 Toyota Camry. But if you had a 2003 Toyota Camry that you were used to, that you'd seen before, if you showed a picture of it and then looked at that, you'd say, yeah, that that looks like the car. It's one of those where it's consistent with, we can't rule it out as, but you know, on its own, would a stranger identify it? Probably not. I get what you're saying. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. You're exactly right. Well, Sheila Eddy was driving that car, Skylar's best friend. Sheila called Skylar's parents after she went missing, and that's not unusual. Sheila talked to Skylar's mom and told her that Skylar, Rachel, and Sheila had snuck out that night and drove around Star City, got high, and then they dropped Skylar back off at the house. She said that she had picked Skylar up and dropped her off at the end of the road to avoid waking up her parents. So everybody believes that Skylar went out with Rachel and Sheila, came back, and then got into this other car that's seen on the camera. Now, Rachel told investigators the same thing, the exact same thing. Well, where was Skylar then? Whose who's car did she get into? The girls were hiding something, investigators believed, and eventually so did Skylar's parents. But what? Where had they really gone? What had they really done? Skylar's parents could never have imagined the truth. Nobody could. The rumors swirled around town, everything from Skylar had OD'd on heroin at a party and 
people dumped their body down a mine shaft to her disappearance was somehow tied into a couple of nearby bank robberies. In September, two months after Skylar disappeared, the West Virginia State Police and FBI had joined the investigation. Police chased the leads, they looked into the rumors, they worked the case. Even they weren't expecting to end up where the truth took them. Investigators kept coming back to Sheila and Rachel. And it makes sense, if you think about it, they were Skylar's best friends. They were the last ones to see her the night she went missing, and when they were questioned, something just seemed off. Investigators said their demeanor and body language during these interviews raised questions. Perhaps the most eye-raising behavior was the lack of social media activity devoted towards Skylar after she disappeared. Sheila hadn't tweeted or posted much of anything for Skylar, or to Skylar. While messages like, please come home and we miss you, flooded the internet with pleas to Skylar, Sheila posted nothing like that. She wasn't continuing to tweet to her best friend like they had done for so long. It just stopped. If her best friend was just missing, why stop trying to talk to her online? Interesting. And she never had good answers for the investigators. Also, Sheila and Rachel's stories were always identical. Not in line with one another or, or lining up or matching in a way that they supported it, but identical. But why? That was the question that stumped police for quite some time. Remember, well, look... I can tell you what I would be doing if I, and I'm not, this is armchair quarterbacking, but. No, that's what we're here for. Given my experience with teenagers, what I would be doing is talking to them kids because I've learned in my own experience, like things will happen in the school that we'll get a notification about a day or two later, but the day it happens, on it, them kids got all the details mm-hmm. by the time they get home. And most of it from not even talking to people in school, but from what they get from their you know, their Snapchat and their book face and their, their Instagram and their Twitter and good golly. I mean, the book of faces has everything, am I right? Yeah, and uh, look, there's a whole bunch of garbage information mixed in there, but there's always some line of truth and, and part of that, part of their, whatever they find out, there tends to be, well, I'll be damned, they actually had it figured out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're definitely going to see that in this case. Remember that it took the police a little while to realize that the car Skylar got into actually belonged to Sheila. Well, after that break, they looked into surveillance footage for that time period in the area around where Skylar's parents' apartment was. And they got a break when video footage at a Sheets, which is a convenience store in that area, showed Sheila's car going a different direction than what she had told them. And then Rachel's cell phone records showed her phone pinging off a tower in nearby Blacksville, which lined up with the Sheets footage, but contradicted the girl's story. Uh-oh. Investigators knew these two girls, Skylar's best friends, had the answers. When confronted with this information, their stories changed. They went somewhere different, that they had let Skylar out of the car, and then they didn't know what happened to her. Investigators believed the girls were definitely hiding something, that they knew where Skylar really went. They knew what she was really doing that night. But what were they covering for her and why? Wait, so at this point, they were they changed their story from we let her out at the end of the road to, okay, well, yeah, we went this other direction and she we, we dropped her off somewhere. They're saying they dropped her off somewhere that wasn't the end of her driveway now? Right. Yeah. So now they're saying, well, we, we don't really know what she was going to go do. We think she was going to meet up with a boy or something. And uh, she told us to just let her out here in this random place. Right. Yeah. Now, none of it makes any sense. But what are they hiding, right? It turned out that what they were hiding apparently became too much for the seemingly meek Rachel. After her parents called 911 because Rachel was uncontrollable, like hitting them and running through the neighborhood screaming, 
and this can be heard on the 911 call, she was committed at Chestnut Ridge, which is like a local um, psychiatric place. The case would then break wide open. Not long after that, in January of 2013, about six months after Skylar disappeared, Rachel and her parents asked the investigators to meet them at Rachel's attorney's office. Rachel has an attorney? Yeah, that's kind of what the police thought, too. So there they sat in downtown Morgantown, and police began asking the wrong questions. They didn't know it. They asked things like, so what What drugs did uh, Skylar try, and where did she OD, and how did this all go down, and, and who, who was she really going to meet that night? As they asked the questions, Rachel pulled a trash can closer to her, sliding it across the floor in apparent anticipation of throwing up from what she was about to tell the state trooper. He wasn't prepared for what she said. We stabbed her. Oh, damn. Rachel and Sheila had stabbed their best friend to death. They picked Skylar up at her house, which she snuck out of, thinking that they were going to go smoke some weed together and hang out, as best friends did, often. They drove about 30 miles away to a secluded, wooded area in Pennsylvania, crossing state lines. The three girls got out of the car and went to a spot where they were supposed to be smoking together when Skylar realized she'd forgotten a lighter. So she turned to go back to the car, and that's when Rachel said, On three... And then the girls attacked. Rachel and Sheila stabbed Skylar over and over and over again. But remember, even at five foot four and probably not weighing more than a wet towel, Skylar was a stubborn, if not confident and determined little girl. So she fought back. She managed to wrangle Rachel's knife away for a moment, even cutting her just above her ankle. And, and she was able to put a little distance between her and the girls, but... Skylar being caught off guard by her two best friends literally stabbing her in the back and being outnumbered two to one, she never had a chance. She was stabbed dozens of times and succumbed to her injuries. Skylar only ever said one word to these girls who were supposed to be her friends. Why? 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 The trooper asked Rachel the same question now. Why? We didn't like her. Again, she was hiding something, but this was all either girl would ever say about their motive until a decade later. Rachel told the trooper how the plan began, in science class. Thinking it was a good idea to kill Skylar and then discussing how they would do it, some students say that they even asked questions in class about disposing of bodies with acid and, and other inappropriate inquiries for a 10th grade science class. Okay, hold on. So they were talking about this in science class, but this happened in... July, like July 5th and into the 6th. So they've been thinking about this a while. Yeah, this was months before the murder occurred. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, this was not like a, oh, let's kill our friend. And then the next day we did it without really thinking about it. This is uh, very much planned out. They continued to plan the murder. Every detail about their scheming and planning is absolutely wicked and terrifying. There's video of Sheila asking the other two girls to share which way they'd rather die between two choices, like, would you rather be stabbed or shot? Apparently, they played this game on more than one occasion. They decided on the day that they would carry out their plan, in part because Rachel wanted to get it done before she left for church camp. Rachel wanted to get it done before she left for church camp. Did I hear that right? Yeah, so the, in, in planning it all out, they needed to do it before she went to church camp, so... Okay, I, I have a pretty busy schedule and way more things to do than I have time to do them. And there are a lot of times I have that. But I just can't imagine thinking, well, you know, I got to do this and that. I, I need We need to go ahead and murder her before I go to church camp. Wow. Yeah, that, a lot of the details about this are similarly confusing and disturbing, frankly. 
Rachel would bring one of her father's shovels and Sheila would bring two knives from her mother's kitchen. Even though it was a hot July day, the girls would wear hoodies, but, you know, girls do that sometimes, so Skylar didn't think much of it. And the hoodies were worn so that they could hide the knives in the pockets and Skylar wouldn't know that they had them. The rest of Sheila's trunk was loaded with cleaning supplies and a change of clothes for each girl. As they continued to stab Skylar, the life leaving her body, there's no indication that either girl had any problem with what they had just done, as their friend died before them. Quite the contrary, according to the book that I referenced earlier, the two girls actually stripped their bloody clothes and had sex at the scene where they had just murdered their best friend. They weren't able to dig a suitable grave due to the terrain, so they just gave up on that and decided instead to loosely cover Skylar's body with some dirt and brush. Skylar's dad has said that they left his daughter there like she was trash. Rachel took investigators to the area where they'd murdered her. There was snow on the ground, and she couldn't remember exactly where they had left Skylar, so it took a while, even after she took them to this area, for them to find what was left of her remains. And more time passed before they were able to confirm it was Skylar, and all along, Skylar's parents holding out hope that maybe their daughter was still alive and this wouldn't be her. Right, that she would come home. So there was snow on the ground. I might have missed the wind, but when they killed her in July, and when did they find her remains? This would have been uh, around January. Oh, so months had gone by. Oh yeah, yeah. And there wasn't there wasn't a lot left at that point because they didn't put her. You know, they didn't bury her. They just basically covered her up a little bit. So between the animals and the elements, um, it, it was it was not a lot left. Sure. Wow. Now, police recovered. Police also recovered Skylar's DNA from Sheila's trunk. And they had Rachel confessing to all this. But remember, Rachel has lied to the police on multiple occasions. So they can't just take her word for it, even though they have all this other stuff. You know, maybe she did it all and she's trying to pin it on Sheila. So what they wanted to do is they wanted to try to get Sheila to say something incriminating. And they and Rachel agreed to be part of this. So using cameras set up in Rachel's house, they had her have Sheila come over and they had some conversations to try to see if Sheila would incriminate herself, but it was unsuccessful. Ultimately, though, Sheila was arrested in the parking lot of a Cracker Barrel in Morgantown. Rachel, for her cooperation with the investigation, was allowed to plead guilty to second-degree murder, even though this is clearly first-degree, and she was sentenced to 30 years. Um, And and actually, I was at uh, several of the hearings in this case because, like I said, I had moved to Morgantown at that time, um, and just, just by... The way things worked out, uh, I actually did a, an internship for the judge who presided over this case. And I want to be clear here that nothing in this episode, nothing in the show notes, and nothing that comes out of my mouth or from me uh, will reveal anything that I observed, heard, or was aware of from serving in that capacity or working in that capacity. Um, everything that we're talking about is public record. It's in the books. It's in the news articles. It's in the court documents. Uh, there's nothing behind the scenes that's going to get let out in this podcast because that's just not the way I roll. Um, but to, to, to witness all of this, uh, it, it, it was almost surreal in a horrible way. Um, you know, Rachel had had this agreement, and uh, it's kind of interesting. I thought you might ask me about just some of the legal nuance here, because if you think about it, these girls planned a kidnapping uh, in Morgantown. They basically uh, affected a kidnapping that went from Morgantown into Pennsylvania, and they committed a murder in Pennsylvania, but then um, she ends up pleading in state court in West Virginia. So 
you have multiple jurisdictions who have some interest in this case and multiple crimes being committed. And frankly, uh, Rachel pleading to second degree murder is quite a concession in a case like this. Uh, and being sentenced to 30 years was also something that was, um, uh, frankly, kind of a gift for somebody to commit such a heinous crime. Uh, and, and I'll say that at the hearing, you know, the prosecutor stood by the plea agreement, um, but in a somewhat uncharacteristic way that you don't typically see this, uh, she argued that while not abandoning what the state's position was in the plea agreement, for the court to really look at this case and look at what was done and to sentence um, Rachel to an appropriate sentence. And so in a way, it was like saying, we're going to do what we have to do according to this plea agreement, but this is a terrible person, so do what you want, judge. But don't, you know, stay in the terms of the plea agreement. But And that had to do with the amount of time she was sentenced to, because I think under the plea agreement, she was looking at 20 to 30 years. And the, the prosecutor had agreed to that. Um, but when it came down to it, sort of argued for, hey, listen, you know, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if she got the high end of the sentence. So the prosecutor said, we, look, we agreed to based on her providing this information, even though she was involved in this and a participant in this sense, she cooperated with us, gave us the information and attempted to help get evidence on Sheila. Uh, we agreed to 20 to 30 years, but hey, judge, she's a evil, rotten person. So, you know, 30 probably make more sense. But more or less with some nuance there, that's pretty much how it went down. And, and I think, you know, sitting in court and uh, watching and observing that, um, I, I, my recollection is that the judge actually asked the prosecutor, are you still sticking by this original agreement that you have? Or, or are you saying that, you know, because it was a sort of an impassioned, like, hey, this is a terrible person. And uh, so the prosecutor clarified, no, we, we stick by our original agreement. We just want to make the record really clear. So all these girls were, they were all juveniles, all 16 or right around there? Correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so they, and uh, they were charged and bound up as adults because of their ages, that, that's permissible under West Virginia law. So even though they were juveniles at the time the crime was committed, because we're talking about murder, they were able to be um, proceeded against as if they were adults, given their age. Because I think they were all at least 16. Um, and uh, and then Sheila, on the other hand, so we know what, what happened with Rachel, but Sheila ended up, she pled guilty to first-degree murder uh, and received a sentence of life with mercy, is how we say it in West Virginia, which just means that she has the possibility of parole. Because she was a minor at the time of the offense, it's required that she have the possibility of parole. No minor can be sentenced to life without parole, which I think we talked about a little bit in the um, DC Snipers. Episode. Yeah, yeah, because Lee Boyd Malvo was originally life without parole, but then there was a Supreme Court uh, ruling that said, yeah, for minors, you, you can't do that. You have to leave the at least the possibility there. Right, right, right. Yeah, and it's my understanding that Sheila's first opportunity to seek parole will be in 2028. Now, while we're talking about parole, Rachel had her first parole hearing not so long ago in May of 2023. Speaking about the murder, she told the parole board, and this goes to, you remember when she, to back up for a second, she told the police that they just didn't like Skylar. And that was the official narrative around this case. Even in court, it was, well, we just didn't like her. Yeah, that, 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 yeah. There's a lot of people I don't like. There's a lot of people a lot of people don't like, and you know, there's no murders happening. And it just didn't seem to add up. And, and there's a lot of rumors and speculation about, well, why did they actually do it and all that kind of stuff. And, and um, 
So speaking about it, she told the parole board, after things became known with the relationship, there was tension between us. It was hostile and violent in our teenage minds. We just didn't know how to handle the conflict. We just wanted it to stop. What is she talking about? Well, what she's talking about is... Well, I mean, if they had sex at the crime scene, which just blows my mind, apparently the two were in some kind of a relationship and Skylar was a third wheel? Yeah, you got it exactly right. So 10 years later, Skylar's family now knows the real reason she was murdered. And her dad has said, We found out finally, after 11 long years, what the real reason why they murdered Skylar. Uh, He said this to W.A.J.R.'s Talk of the Town. He went on, She was in a relationship, meaning Rachel, with Sheila Eddy, a gay relationship, and they were both afraid Skylar was going to tell people. Now, this, this is all covered in detail in the book that I referenced. Skylar learned that Sheila and Rachel had become more than friends during a sleepover when the two other girls got very intimate with Skylar in the room. Um, there were some accounts of this, and apparently Skylar's journal entries recounted it as well. She had, as you said, become a third wheel on the outside of an evolving relationship between Rachel and Sheila, and they felt some kind of way about it, and now we know how it ended. Good Lord. I want to read Skylar's dad's statement that he made to the parole board, asking them to deny Rachel's request to be paroled after 10 years in prison. I'm going to do my best to get through this. But I'll be honest, and you and I have talked about this. Skylar's dad, um, I mean, he just seems like just a genuine... I mean, how would you describe him? He's Yeah, just a genuine... He's, he's a dad. I mean, he's just a real guy. I rarely have met people like him in the past and you just know when you see him and you hear him like he is what he is he says what he means and he says what he feels there's no like i would never suspect that guy of of lying to me of anything because he just is just so real and he wears his heart on his sleeve which is unusual too but you, you can feel that guy's pain like straight through you yeah it's ref- it's refreshing in a way honestly well i um, mean in a you know, very sad, disturbing way, but yeah. Well, well, I mean, refreshing in the sense that he, he's not trying to hide anything. He is who he is. And, and, you know, in a world where everybody is not who they are on, you know, the book of faces, Instagram and all those places like this guy is just, he's like, you get what you get. This is what you see. This is who I am. That part's refreshing, but, um, and you know, to just be okay to, to really say how he feels. So anyway, I want to read his statement. So this next part, this is exactly uh, word for word, what he said to the parole board. In May 2023, ladies and gentlemen of the West Virginia Parole Board, thank you for the opportunity to tell you why I believe this inmate should not be granted parole. Because of that malicious monster, my child never got a limo for her prom. Instead, she got a ride in a coroner's vehicle. Also, there was no sparkling gown for Skylar, just a body bag. She will never have a certificate of graduation, only a death certificate. This narcissistic, first-degree, cold-blooded killer is not sorry for the brutal murder of my only child. It's my belief that she is proud she murdered my daughter in cold blood. The day after she plunged kitchen knives into my child, this devil was seen on a friend's boat, smiling and posing for photographs. The date of July 6, 2012 was chosen for a specific reason. You see, this beast wanted the killing out of the way before she left for church camp. Just another task to mark off her list like standing over my child saying, die, bitch, as my baby girl took her last breath. Because the evil butcher didn't want to be her friend. I wasn't there to defend, 
my baby girl from this diabolical killer on July 6, 2012. But I'm here today to do everything within my power to make sure she stays behind bars. This inmate has proven that she is both evil and mentally unstable. No one can fix that kind of madness. I believe if she's paroled, she will kill again. Murder is a game to this inmate. Ladies and gentlemen, that is insanity. This person has proved to be a narcissist and is a dangerous person who has no remorse in the least. This inmate has destroyed so many lives when she murdered Skylar. This inmate is just a rat that narked and got a deal. Yes, she showed us where she murdered Skylar, yet she's also the narcissist liar that put my daughter in that place. This monster is a danger to society. If released, no parent can close their eyes at night without fear that their own child could possibly be the next victim. This vicious murderer sits here today asking for a second chance. I ask you, where is Skylar's second chance? Where was her second chance when this monster counted to three and began to slash and stab at my only child? I don't want to live in a world without Skylar, but I have to. I want to make sure it's as safe as possible from predators like this one. I ask that you deny parole for this diabolical butcher and allow Skylar's mother and I the knowledge that her killer will not be granted the reality of adulthood that our daughter was never allowed to experience. And wow, that's powerful. How how did the parole board how do words are hard? How did the parole board uh, vote? Well, fortunately, at least in my opinion, they denied her request for a poll. Or for I can't even word now. You're right. That's a lot. Uh, but yeah, they they denied her request for parole. Um, and according to the West Virginia Department of Corrections website now, her projected release date is 2028. And you're probably thinking, well, didn't you say she got 30 years? Um, but my guess is with good time credit and the way that the state system works, if you behave yourself, um, you never really serve your whole sentence. So I suspect they presume that she'll get out in that amount of time one way or another. Well, I mean, I was going to say, I know you lawyers are pretty bad at math, but uh, the, the math wasn't working to me. 2028 to what was she sentenced in? 2013? 13, I think. 13, 13 14? or 14, yeah. Still, that's that's about half of 30 years. So I don't know. I have mixed feelings on, on we'll just say this in general, not this particular individual just yet, but in general, she she took a life. These two girls took a life. And, and mm-hmm. just like... Skylar's dad says, you know, why should they have second chances and opportunities that, that Skylar will never have because she died at their hands? Then on the other hand, they're 16 when they did this horrible thing. They're they're not adults. Like they don't know from one end from the other still at that point. And unfortunately, they have the means and the power to take a life, even though they don't have the intelligence or the maturity or I don't know what it is they're lacking that that prevents them from doing such a, a horrible, 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 horrible thing. And then I go to, if, if they're so they're going to be released at some point, and, and let's say, I guess her max sentence is 30 years, as long as she doesn't do something stupid in, in prison. Say it's 30 years, it's 2043, and she's 46 years old. Well, now we're going to be releasing a, well, she'll probably be 48 or whatever. So you're going to release a 48-year-old, 40-something-year-old into society that... Uh, after murdering someone that was supposed to be her best friend, that's the punctuation mark on her civilian life, then has spent 30 years in the environment as an inmate. Mm-hmm. Like, what? how good for society is she going to be? Which leads me toward 
maybe she should be staying in there forever. Yeah, there's lots of questions there. And I, I, you know, I can't imagine the position Skylar's parents are in. And, and like you said, you can, I mean, it oozes out of her dad, especially, I think, just the way that it has affected him. Um, and it's awful. And so with, with complete respect to that, I, I, you know, those are hard questions. I don't know the answer to that. Look, I totally get that. And I, I can't dispute what her dad said one bit and his thoughts that my baby, my child will never have a second chance. You chose to take that away. So you shouldn't have a second chance either. And at least you're alive. You may be in prison, but at least you're, you know, breathing and at least you can have thoughts and at least you can interact with people and at least your parents can still talk to you. It might be through glass and, and over a, a phone, but at least they, you know, still get to talk to you. I, mm. I get that. I For Rachel's parents, though, and we've not heard anything, I don't think, about Rachel or Sheila's parents. At least I haven't seen anything of that, but... You know, that's their child, too. And, and I guess from their perspective, they maybe they see it differently. Maybe they don't. I don't really know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, well, it's that's their kid, right? So your kid's your kid. Even if they do something stupid, they're still your kid. So the same way that, that uh, Skylar's dad feels about his daughter, I would think if, if... And like you said, there really isn't a lot out there about um, Sheila's parents or Rachel's parents. I think they've tried to stay under the radar. And, I, you know, frankly, I can't blame them for that. Um, so that would be, that'd be a really hard place, right? I mean, cause here's your kid, you love them, but then they do something horrific like that. And I imagine I, for me, I, I would almost feel some sense of, it would be really hard not to carry some, some sense of responsibility or guilt. Uh, you know, I should have known, or how could have I prevented this or what could have we done differently? Right. Or, Where did we go wrong that, yeah. that, that made this a thing? Well, and frankly, there was a lawsuit against, um, Sheila, Rachel, and their parents by the niece family uh, with with regard to Skylar's murder. And I, my understanding is that it eventually got settled. I don't know the contours of who and what and whatever, but it was a civil suit um, essentially for the wrongful death of Skylar. And um, I, I think part of the my understanding from some of the niece family attorneys stuff that they've put out that a big part or a big um, reason behind it wasn't that they were looking to get rich or make a bunch of money, but it was actually in an effort to uh, prevent that from occurring for Sheila and Rachel, you know, assuming that they were to put out a book or go tell all on Lifetime or do something, you know, go on Dr. Phil or something like that um, and make a bunch of money off of it. Yeah. It, it was to prevent them from being able to capitalize on Skylar's murder, which I completely understand, and I don't blame them for that at all. Absolutely. That would be just heinous. I mean, that would be alcohol in the wound and should not be, should never be a, a thing. Hmm. And I, I'm not trying to defend Rachel or Sheila by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, th- that's some pure, evil, messed up, and completely unnecessary, just ridiculous nonsense and my heart goes out to scholars mom and dad and the rest of her family who are all broken up was just trying to think through putting your you know that that each of these these 16 year olds they they had parents and their lives are forever changed so you know this ended scholars life it really messed up the lives of all the people her family that loved her but it also effectively you know, well, it, it sent Sheila and Rachel's life on a very different path than they had planned. Mm-hmm. I don't think there was church camp in uh, 
what is it, Greenville? <laughs> I, I don't know. You'd be surprised. They probably do have church camp there. I did notice that since you brought that up, um, you know, you can look up mug shots and, and uh, inmate inmate shots and things like that in um, Rachel's. Uh, I think it's the most recent inmate picture I saw. She's wearing a cross, which I, on, on a necklace, which I'm honestly kind of surprised that she can have a necklace, but uh maybe maybe it's different in women's prisons some of that stuff i don't know well yeah until she decides to use it to stab somebody i'm with you it it was it's i hope she has really found faith and and had to come to jesus but you always i think have to be skeptical especially for the girl who needed to commit a murder but so she could get to church camp without it affecting her schedule obviously she didn't have a whole understanding of how how that stuff works there ain't that the truth man yeah, it's it's an awful case. I, I just sort of also while we're kind of talking about some of the the peripheral stuff on this case, I, I'll say the investigators and you know there's a Dateline on this case. There's a 2020 on this case. It's covered. It's been covered a bunch. Um, the investigators discuss different uh, interviews that Sheila's demeanor is just very. She when she wants to put it on, she puts it on. When she's when it's not, and she's not in the limelight, or she's not getting what she wants, and it's just it's, she's a totally different person. And there's an air about her that's it's, I don't want to say it's evil, but it has that sort of creepy kind of psychopathic type of behavior. And and I'll say from just witnessing her physically in the courtroom, being in the same room with her, I would agree with that. I, and I think she's very much. I can see the whole you know all of these labels that classmates and others throw around about being narcissistic and this kind of thing um that that seems readily apparent from just a little bit of time that i spent a room with her was sheila the redhead or was that rachel rachel is the redhead well you know as bobby boucher would say mama say redheads is the devil (laughs) hey maybe mama was right you know we're always worried about stranger danger that somebody's going to break in our house or that somebody's going to carjack us or we're going to get you know shot on the street by some stranger or robbed or something. And uh, here's here's proof that, and we know statistically, you're much more likely to be assaulted, raped, killed by someone you know and trust than some stranger. But man, if this just doesn't highlight that, yeah, this is the BF. You're going out. Your 16-year-old girl going out with who's supposed to be your two best friends, you should be, you know, walking on clouds, not mm-hmm. having a fear in the world. Other than maybe you get caught for sneaking out smoking pot, which is the kind of thing, the only kind of thing, that should be a 16-year-old sort of biggest worry at that moment in life. Mm-hmm. Not my two BFFs are going to whip out knives and stab me, which they've been planning to do for months. Yeah, this wasn't Mean Girl stuff. This was on just a sick, distorted level. That, frankly, I mean, this is the kind of thing you look at and you just, I, I think this is hard to wrap your mind around, honestly. Because, like you said, as a sixteen-year-old kid, you know, and and honestly, it seemed like that was the case. You know, Skyler, it wasn't a thought in her mind that they would ever do something like that to her. And why? Why should it be? It, it, it should never be, yeah, no no 16-year-old should ever have to worry about that. But, yeah. you know, as Joe Kenda says, the most dangerous animal on the planet is a human being, and I would just add that the most devious is quite possibly the teenage girl. The, the biggest question surrounding many murders, and we've asked it in many of the episodes that we've done so far, many of the cases that we've looked at that haven't been on the podcast, is why? You know, why? That's what fuels most true crime people, right? We want to know the why behind 
people and what they're doing, these crazy things, these evil things, what drove them to do that? It's human behavior is what's interesting to a lot of us. But here it is so poignant that why was also the victim's last word. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. Just delete that. Just delete what? I just blurted out and then took it back. And we know how it ended. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. We're good with... Well, and then you said something. You said, good Lord.